Gage Buddhism and also Dharmacology, or which was formerly entitled Dharma Nerds. Um, and I've done one podcast that I've put out there with a friend of mine on Buddhist anarchism, and I do intend to continue that uh, as a series, but I want to sort of encapsulate it into another uh, sort of podcast series on Buddhism and culture, or experiencing Buddhism through culture. Uh, I think this is really needed. I know that I need it. Uh, I've, I think that the reason often why um, the experience of practicing Buddhism feels so strange and uh, so much like a precious kind of religion is because it becomes so detached and removed from our, our culture and it's not, it hasn't yet become part of our culture. Um, so I think I'd like to explore Buddhism through culture, uh, through the arts, uh, through poetry and writing, uh, music, so that uh, we can begin to enculturate it and it becomes a more natural part of our lives. I also want to explore Buddhism through culture because it's a way of, instead of sort of nailing down uh, precepts and practices to their exact meaning and nature and the exact and traditional way in which you're supposed to do this, I want to expand it. I want to uh, enable us to engage it with it creatively uh, so that we can expand uh, the experience of Buddhism because I find not only Buddhism to be liberating, but art to be liberating. And the most liberating experience I've, I've had throughout my life have been artistic experiences through drawing and painting and poetry and music. And this is what I felt has really liberated me and healed me. And so why wouldn't I find Buddhism there too? So what I've been exploring lately is um, Buddhism and the beats. Um, the poetry of Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg uh, Diane de Prima and many others, um, and reading the poetry, reading the novels that, of Jack Kerouac has been an incredibly liberating experience uh, because he puts things into words that you can actually experience in the moment uh, with him. And, and in fact, it's really changed my whole relationship to language. So in addition to not thinking, there's also thinking in a different way by changing the way language plays with our brain. Now, some people will uh, object first, uh, first right off the bat that, well, the Beats were not the first Buddhists in America. The Buddhists have been here many, many decades before them and Chinese immigrants and other immigrants from Asia and Japan. Uh, this is true. I'm not claiming that they are the first Buddhists of America or the best Buddhists or anything like that. Uh, it's just that I, in particular, happen to relate to Buddhism through the beats and what they uh, put forward in, in the 50s and 60s. And I think this also relates to uh, the prior discussion we had on Buddhism and anarchism. Uh, the interesting thing about Jack Kerouac in particular was that he had no teacher or guru. Uh, he didn't belong to a Buddhist organization. He, uh, he, he didn't practice in a particular tradition. He actually drew from many different traditions from Zen and Theravada and Chan, uh, Mahayana. So uh, it, there weren't any real teachers available at that time in 1940, 1950, when he started studying and practicing Buddhism. Uh, the way he went about learning about Buddhism was to go to the library. 
He went to the library. He took books out of the library that were printed in English that he could understand and began studying them on his own completely. A lot of what Jack Kerouac had to say about Buddhism was actually sort of accidental or mistaken or perhaps not the best way to interpret uh, the, the Buddhist scriptures or Buddhist practices. But he was able to grasp it, even without a teacher, and actually incorporate it in, into his life, including meditation. The only other teachers that he had in his life were other poets who also happened to be into Buddhism as he was, such as Allen Ginsberg um, and Gary Snyder. And he learned from them, and they would discuss Buddhism and practice together. But he did not seek out a teacher. He taught himself Buddhism. So while I'm going to begin with... Uh, Buddhism and the Beats, and uh, Jack Kerouac in particular, this is going to become hopefully a, uh, a larger discussion about uh, Buddhism and culture, and, and more all of the arts, uh, beyond poetry and writing, into music and theater and performance and film, so that we can begin to experience Buddhism in a more creative way. And although this will be primarily focused on culture and Buddhism, uh, there will be some political discussion in as much as politics enters into culture and therefore uh, confronts Buddhism in that sense. So we'll have some of that discussion, but mostly we're going to be focusing on Buddhism and the cultural experience. Let's begin with a selection from Big Sky Mind, Buddhism and the Beat Generation, edited by Carol Tonkinson, from the section on Jack Kerouac, uh, this is uh, one of Jack's articles that was published in Escapade, which is a, quote, men's magazine. Escapade, a men's magazine more well known for its pictures of scantily clad women than its essays on philosophy, was the unlikely outlet for most of Kerouac's essay writing on Buddhism. The essay excerpted here, which presents the Four Noble Truths, ran in October 1959, as Kerouac's regular column, The Last Word. Because none of us want to think that the universe is a blank dream on account of our minds, so we want belief and plenty names. We want lists of laws and a little bit of harumph, shoulders back separation from the faceless ah uh, of true heaven. I see men now standing erect in bleaky fields, waving earnest hands to explain yet ghosts, pure not ghosts, and even the great Chinese who've known so much for so long will paint delicately on silk the truth cloud, upper skies that lead off over rose hump unbelievable mountains and crunchy trees, indefinable waterfalls of white, then the earthbound scraggle tree twisted into a rock, then because Hunan Chinese, the little tiny figures of men on horseback lost in all that, usually leaving eight-tenths of the upper silk to scan the unscannable void. So I was wiser when I was younger after a bad love affair and sat in my lonely November room thinking, it's all a big crock, I want to die, and thinking the dead man's lips are pressed tasting death as bitter as dry musk, but he might as well be tasting saccharin for all he knows. Yet those thoughts didn't stand up to the Four Noble Truths as propounded by Buddha and which I memorized under a street lamp in the cold wind of night. One, all life is sorrowful. Two, the cause of suffering is ignorant desire. 
Three, the suppression of suffering can be achieved. Four, the way is the noble eightfold path. Parentheses, which you might as well say is just as explicit in Bach's Goldberg variations, Bach the composer. Jack continues, not knowing it could just as well be, one, all life is joy. Two, the cause of joy is enlightened desire. Three, the expansion of joy can be achieved. Four, the way is the noble eightfold path. Since what's the difference? Since supreme reality, we are neither subject to suffering nor joy. Why not? Because who says? But it was Ashvagosa's incomparable phrase that hooked me on the true morphine of Buddha, quote, repose beyond fate, because since life is nothing but a short, vague dream encompassed round by flesh and tears, and the ways of men are the ways of death, if not now, eventually, you'll see, the ways of beautiful women such as these pictured in this magazine are eventually the ways of old age, and since nothing we do seems to go right in the end, goes sour, but no more sour than what nature intends in need of sour fertilizer for continuers and continuees, quote, repose beyond fate meant, quote, rest beyond what happens to you. Give it up, sit, forget it, stop thinking. Your own private mind is greater than all. So that my first meditation was a tremendous sensation of, when did I do this last? It seems so natural, so right. Why didn't I do it before? And all things vanished. What was left was the united stuff out of which all things appeared to be made of without being made into anything really. All things I then saw as unsubstantial trickery of the mind. Furthermore, it was already long gone out of sight, the liquid water ball earth, a speck in sizeless space. Okay. So this is what I mean by Jack Kerouac's bespoke Buddhism, um, because he engaged with Buddhism uh, on his own terms. Uh, he, he played with it. He created. He, he sought to find the, the fathom the depths of it, but also push it to its boundaries, invent new ways of interpreting it. In this case, he reinterprets the Noble Eightfold Path as instead of suffering, there is suffering, life is suffering, he interprets it, life is joy. Instead of saying there's a root of suffering, a cause of suffering, the cause of suffering being ignorant desire, he says the cause of joy is enlightened desire. Now, I've seen other um, interpretations uh, that reverse the polarity of a particular Dharma teaching, for instance, Sangharakshi says transcendent uh, 12 links of dependent origination in which you proceed through the Dharma uh, through a, a different 12 links that leads eventually to liberation from the cycle of life and death. Um, I've also seen Doug Smith's um, reversal of the Noble Eightfold Path, something similar to Kerouac's uh, Four Noble Truths, in which he reverses the polarity and you follow the Noble Eightfold Path to uh, liberation. So then it turns out that uh, Kerouac's uh, reverse polarity of the Four Noble Truths from suffering to joy 
and from ignorant desire to enlightened desire via the Eightfold Path uh, is a, a, a valid possible uh, interpretation. Um, but I think it also speaks to you know his particular uh, path through uh, the Dharma and, and his own struggle as a Buddhist practitioner and as a person uh, struggling between suffering and joy and pleasure, even um, the tension between the two. And he, he would even seem to seek out experiences that, that would cause intense suffering, um, choosing to drink alcoholically in dark alleyways, filthy, with, you know, filthy alleyways uh, full of sick people and talk, you know, write his stories and poems about this experience of being, you know, down with the bums on, on, uh, in these dark places, uh, on Skid Row. And, and then he would also have these other experiences of sitting on a mountaintop, uh, in, uh, Desolation Angels, spending the summer working as a, a fire watcher, uh, for the, uh, federal government, uh, on the, on a mountaintop in Washington state, and hoping to have this grand spiritual experience, having neither drank or used anything, and just living this very simple, still life as a uh, person watching uh, through the windows for fires um, day after day by himself, hoping to have this kind of spiritual breakthrough, which ultimately did not happen. But yet he sought those kind of experiences too. And there's a lot of his poetry is full of this ecstatic joy and intense feeling of uh, beauty, surrounded by beauty and, and filled with beauty. So he had both of those experiences. He could experience both very, very intensely, both the suffering and the joy. So it's these intense experiences of both suffering and joy and of finding the beauty in both that I want to explore through uh, culture uh, and its relationship to Buddhist uh, teaching and practice. I hope that you'll join me in the discussion uh, by commenting on the podcast or even write to me uh, at the email address posted below to say that you'd like to be on this podcast and you'd like to discuss these things. I'd be happy to have uh, many discussants, uh, people who are knowledgeable about the arts or just someone who just uh, enjoys poetry, music, art, film for themselves and wants to talk about how they relate that to their Buddhist experience. I really welcome anyone to participate and join me in the podcast.